Blog Talk Radio. I shook a little of that weight off there. Uh, listen, by the way, 
uh, if you uh, feel like calling in, uh, please do so, because our number is 347-996-3903. And don't forget to check out our website, www.beantownpals.com, for more exciting things over there. And we have a special guest coming up on the half hour, Mr. Hanchi, Stephen Kaufman. He was here a, a few weeks ago, and boy, he's got some great stories from his book, and uh, so you, you listen, I want you to hope that you, 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 you stick around for that part of the show because he really, I mean, the way he reads these stories and the great messages in there are really fascinating. So we can't wait for that to happen. And speaking of interviews, recently I had the pleasure, and he's so tough to get a hold of, me, I has been, but I recently had the pleasure of, I guess you could use that word, of sitting down with the mayor and asking him about, you know, himself and what he has plans for being town and, and all, you know, and, you know, the mayor is just, you, 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 you know, you got to be careful with the mayor. You just never know where he's going but with things. So, well, anyway, enough of that. Just let's, let's, I'm going to play this. And that's tonight's segment of the news. This is Brad Beanwell signing off and sending you over to Bucky in his new segment, Beantown Upfront and Personal. Over to you, Bucky. Well, thank you, Brad, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I'm really, really anxious about tonight. I've been waiting to do this a long time, and here I am. And what a better way to start off our first show than to have on Mayor Hasbeen. That's right, Mayor Hasbeen of Beantown. So, Mayor, welcome to, you know, Beantown up front and personal, and it's great to have you on the show, and you're just looking great. How are things going? Bucky, I've been great. I can't believe it that I'm still here. I'm still rocking and talking, and it's great to be the mayor of Beantown. Well, you know, you've won every election for the past 20 years. I mean, that's an incredible record. I mean, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of questions on how you've been able to do that. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into that, but, I mean, what do you you attribute it to? Bucky, money talks! (laughs) Now, okay, well, you know, that... You know, well, you went through that period, and you've been cleared of all charges. So, you know, tonight we just want to keep it light. And uh, so how's your health been, Mayor? Well, Bucky, you know, I got a problem every day, something else at my age. You know, I'm at the age now where you can die of natural causes. Well, you know, <laughs> you you always were the jokester, Mayor. You know, you always were able to pull that part off. Now, I understand that you you want to build a new wing on, talking about health, you want to build a brand new wing on on the Beantown Hospital. That's true? That's right, Bucky. I want to wing it. Well, you know, uh, the thing that's interesting is that you want to put 10 new rooms on, which is fantastic, but, you know, the news reported the other day that you ought to keep all of those rooms uh, kind of empty and vacant (laughs) for yourself. Is that true? That's right, Bucky. I get the disease du jour, you know what I'm saying? So, so, I mean, but why would you need 10 rooms, Mayor? Because, Bucky, with the amount of diseases I contract, you need at least 10 rooms to... Take care of this broken body. Well, you know, but, man, every time you go in for a checkup, they always find out that it's what they call psychosomatic. You, mean, you really just think you have these diseases, but you really don't. You know, do you ever stop and think about that? Bucky, it helps the medical profession. I know that, but you admitted the other day when, you know, I was looking at the Beantown Gazette, and somebody said that you go for an annual. How often? An I go annual for checkup? An- Annual, I go every four weeks. But 
But it's supposed to be an annual, man. And you're just going every four weeks. Don't you think that's a little, I mean, I hate to say it, but crazy? Fucky. I overreact. You know what I'm saying? Everything is a disease to me. A woman asked me if I had Altoids. And I said, no, but I've had hemorrhoids. I don't understand it, Bucky. Well, I'm a hypochondriac. That, that, that I, see, that's what I'm talking about. Your, your mind goes right to the worst thing. You've know, you got to get over that, man. I mean, so, so man, I was in the Beantown Gazette this week that uh, there's a report that you've been visiting a lot of hospitals, like 22 hospitals in the last four or five days. I mean, that's a lot of hospitals. I mean, I know there's an outbreak of this new bean fungus, but I mean, what's, what, what's your thing about this? I know I got it. I just can't find it. Well, I need multiple opinions yeah, from the medical community. I understand, but the, after 22 saying that you're okay, you should should feel good about this. Now, I mean, do you do you give? I've heard also that you're obsessive about giving yourself examinations to yourself. Is is that because you you're looking for the thing, or you just like to do that? At my age, I just want to make sure all the parts are there. Well, I can understand that, man. You know, if I were your age, I'd be worried about having all my parts, too. But, you know, where do you think this obsession about health came from, a, a disease? I mean, what was your childhood like? Tell us about your parents. Well, I'll tell you, it was a difficult childhood. My mother was a peanut. My father was an almond. It was a... It was a mixed marriage, and in those years, it was difficult growing up with a couple of nuts. Was, was there any ever any violence? Yeah, I remember sometimes uh, somebody would get assaulted. Well, did you, man? Did you ever think that you might be like adopted? You know, come to think of it, I, I, I didn't look like those two nuts. Well, that must have been really. Really difficult on you there, man. So, I mean, what about later on when you grew up? I mean, and you wanted to bring a date home. How did you handle that? Well, I'd be driving my date over to my home, and I'd say, I want you to know my parents are nuts. And she'd say, everybody thinks their parents are nuts. I'd say, no, you don't understand. My parents are really nuts. So so what happened when you'd get there? What, what, what happened? Well, she'd look at them and say to me, you're right, they really are a couple of nuts. So would that just kind of end it right there, or what would happen? Some hung around, but uh, a lot of them left when they found out they weren't cashews. Yeah, well, you know, some, some, I guess some dates are out just for the cashews. Uh, go figure. <laughs> That's good, May. I get it. Figure. <laughs> That's good. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us on our first episode of Upfront and Personal in Beantown. And, you know, it was nice to find out a little bit about your background. And is there anything you want to say to the Beantowners right now about how the things are in Beantown? What do you think? Well, Bucky, as the mayor of Beantown, I want everybody to know that Beantown is in great shape and under control, even though I'm out of shape and out of control. Well, that sounds uh, interesting, man. Well, that's it, folks. Uh, Wow. Something, huh? I may have. Well, wow! He can go off on a tangent. And uh, speaking of nuts, how about uh, some music from Two of a Kind? I love those guys. And, uh, you well, know, it kind of fits in the mood right after we heard what they had.
storm In our little hideaway beneath the waves Resting our heads on the seabed In an octopus's garden near a cave We would shout and swim about the coral that lies beneath the waves Oh what joy for every girl and boy knowing they're happy and they're safe We would be so happy you and me No one there to tell us what to do as it seems there has been a major accident on life is a highway. A spoonload of teen beans were carousing late last night when their vehicle left the road on that steep learning curve and collided with an oaf tree. Uh, excuse me, Brad, did you say oaf tree? Yes, I did, Steve. It seems some oaf was in the way as these teens had trouble negotiating that learning curve. True, Brad, it seems that's a tough spot for teen beans. There have been numerous accidents on the learning curve in the last few weeks. Well, life is a highway. And it's no easy road for any beans, Steve, especially those teen beans. Especially at that particular spot. That learning curve is one tricky turn. You just never know what's coming around the corner, do you, Brad? That's true, Steve, but once you get past that learning curve, life's highway begins to open up a road of success. And remember, Brad, when it comes to life's highway and the road to success, there really are no accidents, are there, Brad? That's true, Steve. No accidents, just lessons. 
I wonder if those carousing teens will ever learn those lessons. And moving along, Brad, Mortis reports on severe frosting on Chocolate Cake Boulevard. Commuters should exercise caution there and try not to lickety-split their way through that frosting. I couldn't have said it better myself, Steve. And our weatherman, Lance Lagoon, predicts there is more icing on the way tonight. We'll be right back to the WBEAN News after these messages. Hello. Dinosaur Mancha. For Dinosaur Mancha's Dino Mike Vitamin D. Then Dragon Lightly. Bogged down. Bones weary. Feeling like a skeleton. Out of date. Then try Dinosaur Mancha's Dino Mike Vitamin D. At drugstores everywhere. <laughs> Uncle Rex here. For Uncle Rex's weekly wrinkle workout. Looking like a wreck, feeling like a heap, stuck in a rut, body need work, face need lifting. Why not try Uncle Rex's weekly wrinkle workout? We can work out any wrinkle wrecking your look. Rex of Rex Rex here. Tired of fruits and vegetables? Too many vitamins? Not enough sugar and fat. Time to dine at the Pig Out Cafe. Join Vane, Muncher, and me at the Pig Out Cafe. Ask for our early bean menu. We offer the greasiest, least nutritious, and slimiest food in town. That's the Pig Out Cafe. Use your beans, trust your heart. Build your character in Everybody is. If you're out there on the roads, watch out for that icing. Woo-hoo! You know it's uh, you know it's cold now, and that icing can really mess you up. It's slippery stuff. That icing, and just don't go lickety split through there. Boy, you know I I I, I like you know sometimes I like you know the, the businesses around town to advertise their products, but boy. You know, Munchu and, and Rex, I mean, are they serious with the stuff they're trying to sell? I, I, you know, I don't want to talk bad about, you know, the competition, but, uh, you know, those guys are a little little wild. Hey, you know, I was down at the Crock-Pot. Some of you came down to see me, and that was really great. And as you know, um, Betty hasn't been around for a while, and, uh, you know, I just, I just, you know, I'm looking for some company. That's all, a little company, and it's not easy. Let me tell you, when you're all alone and you're trying to find some good company, you know, and I've been, been on, um, you know, you know, bean.com looking for another bean. And I've, it's, well, here, why don't you listen to this? We'll go down to the clock, but I recorded this earlier this week and uh, you'll see my problems. So, hey, it's great to be back here at the Crock-Pot. Well, you know, I'm still working on that dating thing, but I think I'm a little more focused. I'm going to go for somebody a little more responsible, and I think I found my dream girl. Yeah, Goldie. She owns Locks Industries, otherwise known as Just Right Enterprises. You know, porridge, beds, chairs. You, you've seen the commercials, right, folks? Yeah. Great gal. You know, she's going through a rough time now. You've probably seen this in the papers. You know, she's involved with that big lawsuit with the, with the bears. They're claiming she stole their recipe for the porridge as well as stole the ideas for the beds and chairs. 
They claim it was breaking and entering. They said that they had just made some forage and went out for a walk waiting for it to cool down. And according to them, Goldilocks came along and, you know, broke into the place and tested everything out and then stole their idea. <laughs> can you believe this? Have you seen the pictures? She's cute as can be. I mean, how is this possible? I, you know, I, I think this is preposterous. How could a cute little girl like this pull something off like that? <laughs> but then again, maybe they got a point. You know, I mean, in a store that just sells porridge, beds, and chairs, I mean, that is kind of weird. You know, or maybe, you know, I, you know, I've been wrong before, so maybe after we get the fingerprints, maybe this will be, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, even with all of that, still, she's, she's better than those other experiences. You know, the damsels in distress, and the dates, and then, you know, the occasional witch, and the sleeping princesses. And then there was the queen, you know, but she didn't mention drama queen. You know the one I'm talking about, the one with the mirror? You know, every ten minutes, mirror, mirror on the wall. Talk about insecure. <laughs> wow, I kept telling her, you're beautiful. What are you doing? No, she had to run to the mirror. That was driving me wacky. <laughs> oh, yeah, in the incessant questions like, oh, does this crown make my head look big? Or, or does this gown make me look fat? I couldn't stand it. <laughs> and the final straw was when I walked into the kitchen one day, she's putting poison in an apple. And I said to myself, hey, Bucky, it's time to get out of here. <laughs> this has gone on long enough. So I'm asking you, what would you do? Possible criminal record or definite poison apple? Which would you choose? Or <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, you know, I say to myself, Bucky, maybe she'd just, you know, put it all to an end and just start dating women who are already locked up. Let me see. Where did I put that Rapunzel's number? <laughs> well, folks, just thanks for putting up with my silliness and uh, have a good night. I said, it's not easy, you know, but I'm not giving up. And, well, here's a, a couple of kids who just know all about not giving up. So let's listen to them. I got, they got some good ideas, these kids. You're never too young to make a difference. If I find a problem, I'm going to find a way over the problem. A lot of people don't know that there's hunger in the United States. They don't know it's in their home neighborhood. Trying to help those who need it. When we wash our hands, the half of the water gets wasted. So I made this invention. I thought about this problem. I feel a little bit sad because it's not really nice having all this rubbish in the ocean. There's paper, there's bottles. If I could make an invention that could take out all the rubbish in the ocean and make a giant soup. It's called my daily idea book, and it's coming from my heart and my head. This is where I make my inventions. It's just the prototypes, but someday we actually are going to make them into real inventions. I'm making a robot. It's going to have a dustbin next to it with some rubbish. My ideal world hey, is where uh, there's no pollution. If I would be the Prime Minister of India, in one house there should be one tap and water should come from the tap. Stop our world hunger. If you give food to somebody, you can really show them that they're loved. There needs to be a change. This is possible. If you just try, yeah. 
to find that it's it's hard to find uh, something new. But I think part of what uh, not only is it the lessons that you're teaching, but your characters really are identifiable. I mean, you can just fall into who these characters are and their positions and relationships to each other, and then the you know the story unfolds. Yeah, well, well, one of the reasons I guess that that works as well as it does is because what, when when I created the characters, oh, okay, let's let, let's start with the uh, the main guy, Mokube, the uh, the teacher. Okay, I kind of like uh, put myself in that particular position because as a writer, you generally are the characters you're writing in one way or another. Yeah, and exactly. And then I found out that also. Kido, the doggy, and Tomo-san, the little boy, are actual realistic things that you that you can absolutely connect to. And uh, because it, does, it doesn't matter, okay, that the fact that the book takes place in uh, Japan uh, a couple of centuries ago kind of a thing, that's just the uh, scenario. But what's interesting here is that it falls into every culture, so what I'm doing now, <laughs> based on a lot of the response I've been getting, is I'm taking the same book, all right, and I'm plagiarizing myself, if you will. And so instead of Cherry Blossoms for Children, which is essentially like Asian, we can also, uh, we meaning I and my editor, turn it around as um, put it into the context of Native Americans, put it into the context of uh, European uh, communities and things like that, and keeping away from the actual, any kind of connection to a religious ideal. Once you do that, I mean, it's just totally uh, making the book biased, and you don't want to do that, because that creates its own uh, problems. And so I I just like to look at this thing, and uh, then someone says, hey, well, you've got all these stories here. Uh, Do you have any more? I, you know, being a little glib at times, I said, yeah, well, there were 32 in the book. I mean, would you like another 32? I said, yeah. I said, okay, we'll get the publishers going. I mean, you know, kind of thing. I, I mean, you can go on and on and on with this. And uh, I, sure. I find that I'm very comfortable doing it. And, you know, uh, well, this, it's not like... Uh, I don't... I'm not like, it, yeah. I've got the book open right now. Okay. And, uh, you know, it... I, I, again, you know, we know there's no such thing as an accident or chance. Um, and I opened up to a perfect, I think, perfect one for this uh, weekend because, you know, a lot, a lot of families got together for, for Thanksgiving. Yeah. And everybody, the running joke is when the families get together, I mean, uh, I heard things like in, in my family they had to put away the shop objects every time we sat down to Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner. <laughs> sure. So... This one is called the How to Settle a Quarrel. Do you have your book with you? I mean, do you want to? I, I talk always, about as that a matter one? of fact, uh, my my copy is so uh, underscored and um, also you're talking about lesson number eleven, I, I believe. Yeah, and, how to uh, settle a quarrel. How to settle a quarrel. Yeah, and that's really uh, that works for any. Actually, that works in any age group. I mean, you know, if you're talking about grown-ups or kids, you know. Um, how they, uh, you know, people are sitting there minding their own business, and you know, uh, they always, when they get into a situation, they're always trying to make you feel sympathetic towards their, or empathetic in this case, maybe towards their position, 
And you have to really uh, understand, and you have to learn this as a child, you really do, that you can't take sides if you really don't feel it's right for you. Okay? Right. And so how right. to settle you a quarrel You have to be true to your heart. Yeah, you know, you got to read from the heart. So uh, how to settle a quarrel is a pretty interesting one. Uh, you want me to read that? I love it. This is a great, uh, a great one. And by the way, okay. let me just... Because I'm a person that needs to, I'm very, you know, a name or or even a place doesn't really click until I have an idea of how the letters uh, work together. But Mokubei is spelled M-O-K-U-B-E-I, Mokubei, and it's obviously That's Japanese. Correct. Yes. Okay, and uh, Tomo-san is T-O-M-O-san, S-A-N. And yes. uh, they're the two two characters in this uh, particular story. Yeah, well, they're, they're primarily the two characters in, in, in most of the stories. I mean, it could be uh, Uncle John and uh, Little Freddy. I mean, you know, as far as that yeah, goes. Yeah, right. But Tomo-san, so, uh, explain, uh, we know who Mokobe is. That's the, the, the wise individual, the mentor. And yeah. tell us a little bit about Tomo-san. All right, Tomo-san is just an everyday, uh, yeah, well, that's what it is. That's what we all are, as a matter of fact. An everyday kid that's going through the um, the uh, tr- trials and tribulations of life, trying to get together and trying to make sense of it all, even though he's a young boy. Uh, so uh, he goes through all of these different uh, situations, and there are times where he gets very confused because he's watching the way adults are behaving, and he senses, and this is just like every kid, I'm going to tell you, just about every kid I've come across senses that there's something not so, let's use the word kosher, about the way things are being handled by the adults <laughs> kind of a thing. So um, he, he tries to make his own mind up, and then uh, Mokobe comes in there and like uh, to use the uh, use the uh, Little tag over there. He pulls his coat, so to speak, and says, "No, come here, man. Let me t- let me explain this to you, kid." <laughs> that kind of Great. A thing. And of great. course, Tito and always, the, 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 yeah. No, yeah, it's, it's always great. Yeah, it's, Kito, the, and, yeah. It, do you find that today, kids? Who um, I found that <clears throat> it's interesting with this generation that they, and I think that what you're doing is really profound because most kids today do not want to listen, period, to anything. They'd rather put their head down and. Look at the uh, you know the cell phone in their hand and yeah, start I'm, texting I'm or, or whatever. So the fact that you're breaking yeah. through to these kids, yeah, no, yeah. the fact that you're breaking through these kids to actually get them to sit down and listen is uh, is great. So why don't, well, why don't you go right into the story so we can have the listener understand what we're talking okay. about? Okay, let's have a little fun here. I, you know, and I, of course, when I'm reading it, I try to make the voices, you know, <laughs> the whole thing. Uh, okay. Anyway. Mokube, the wise man, and his friend Tomo-san were sitting in the shade playing a game of chess. All of a sudden, two of Mokube's neighbors came up to him, and at the same time, while arguing and blaming each other for the misfortunes they were both having. Both of them thought the wise man would know how to help them. Each thought that he was right, and that Mokube would show favor because of gifts they had given to him in the past. One said, he refuses to put a fence up to keep his dogs away from my chickens. He is certainly very silly to cause this trouble. The other replied, he is the fool. He refuses to keep his chickens away from the side of my dogs. The chickens run onto my property. Let him put up the fence. 
They argued back and forth for quite some time until Mobile Bay shouted at both of them to be quiet. Why don't you both share in the cost of the fence? And that way the problem will be solved and no one will be angry, he advised. Hmm, said both of the men. That sounds like a very good idea. They both thanked Mokube, and smiling and joking with each other, they walked off. Mokube and Tomo-san went back to playing their game of chess, knowing that the two neighbors had decided to help each other put up a fence. And the, and the little moral of this, don't let anyone make you think you owe them something because of favors they may have done for you in the past. Now, okay, I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit over here. This is so universally, in my view, the way to deal with things, okay? Because uh, my basic philosophy in a lot of my books is that you must win regardless of the situation as an individual and as a group. But you must win for the benefit of all concerned. Now, if, if, if you're going to like, judge something, uh, what's going to happen over here is good, bad, or indifferent, someone's going to be missed because someone's going to say, hey, yeah, well, uh, he gave him a, a cake last week and I didn't, so of course he's going to side with him. You can't do that. If you're going to settle a quarrel, you have to take yourself out of it and just look at it from, from the both both uh, perspectives, your opinion. So settling a quarrel becomes a very, very simple uh, matter of common sense. Hey, all right, if he would have said, okay, you put up the fence to keep the dogs away from the chickens, okay, and took the other part, the other, the other, you know, took one part and not the other, the one whose part he didn't take would harbor a grudge. And it's just human nature. I said, okay, man, well, I'll show him how I can get around that and cause him more trouble. So you always want to assuage everybody in the argument. However, this is not always possible. And the reason it's not always possible is because someone's going to have more of an attitude than someone else. And the only way, you know, you almost have to be Solomonic in, the, in this kind of a thing. The only way you're going to really be able to create a peace or a harmony is to make both of them accept responsibility for the outcome. At which point, uh, you know, unless they're uh, psychotic or sociopathic or whatever the deal is, they're going to concur with it. They're going to say, hey, you know, the guy's right. Okay, so the fence costs $10. Here's 5 bucks. You give me 5 bucks, and we'll go get a fence, and we'll put it up together. And everybody lives happily ever after. And that happens to be a fact. It's not like one of these, yeah, but, yeah, but... <laughs> You know, there's always going to be a yeah, but, you know. But the thing is, like, if everybody's happy with the outcome, you got it made. And if one person isn't happy with the outcome, you got to find out what it is that will make the other person, you know, uh, concur with the result that you're looking to attain. Unless, of course, you know, they're just like uh, off the wall, which a lot of people are. But at the same time, if you approach it rationally and sanely, you will be able to uh, create a uh, harmony and a peace. Wow. Well, you know, you keep saying, and you (laughs) said, I saw a a video, and you say that, and I guess it's more of a question, but uh, you say that uh, you have to win, but there's no such thing as a win-win. But in this story, there is a win-win. No, there is not a win-win. 
Okay, and the reason okay. it's not a win-win is because someone has to instigate the action. Okay, if the two of them had decided to like clean it up themselves, okay, then you, I guess you can do the win-win thing. But in any event, someone would have had to approach the other, and the one who has to approach the other is generally the one that's going to be. I don't want to say in charge, but he's going to be leading the uh, negotiations, if you will. But leading negotiations does not mean that you're going to, like, uh, impose your uh, will. It's going to be, what do we have to do to make this work? Once you have that, then the, both of them have won for the benefit of all concerned. But that being able to have a win-win situation doesn't make sense. There cannot be a win-win situation if there is a situation that has to be resolved and someone has to take charge of the uh, situation. Uh, you know, it's that it does get like moot at sometimes, but uh, the reality of it, and I've, I've spoken to a lot of uh, major uh, executives and things like that, and they they go for the win-win thing only as a uh, Madison Avenue ploy. You know, there's no such thing. Two people can't win a fight. End of story. <laughs> how, how can that happen? Okay, unless it's a tie, and if it's a tie, that means nobody won. <laughs> that's my view. I mean, that's my view. So if I get into a situation with somebody, hey, I offended you, I apologize, okay, for having offended you, and then the other person either says, yeah, well, I don't accept your apology. I said, well, you know, and there's the old story. Sometimes talking it out doesn't work. I mean, but that's another story altogether. You don't want to get into that. So, well, what do I have to do to make you calm down, as the case may be. Well, this, that, and the other thing. And if you're strong enough and you have enough sensibility, you're going to say, yeah, you know, you're right, and let's see that that doesn't happen again. So it's not a win-win, okay? It's winning as an individual and gaining the most out of it for myself and seeing that you win as an individual and get the most out of it for yourself as well. Wow. Well, you know, I just <laughs> I just flipped to another uh, chapter here, and this I, I, I love this because this is a, a big part of my life right now and big part of how, how I think uh, things ultimately come to be, and that's the value of practice. The, the value of uh, profit. Yeah, practice, well, eight. Uh, pra the value of practice, I mean, you know, like number eight, I think you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, practice is a very, very important thing, but very few people understand what practice means, okay? A lot of people think practice means just uh, doing something and uh, over and over and over until you don't have to practice it anymore. Uh, the problem with that is uh, are you practicing correctly? which gets into a situation of that getting away from right and wrong. See, you shouldn't teach kids right and wrong. You should teach them what is correct for the situation. Yeah, and that's a very, yeah. very uh, important thing, I think, you know. Well, why don't you, you know, talk no, about that? What is the distinction between right and wrong and correct? Right and wrong is based on the uh, idea that, all right, you're in a certain situation. Uh, and you're coming, you're, all right, it's the basic thing like when in Rome do as the Romans do, okay, all right. Uh, when you're in a situation and your belief system says you must absolutely do the right thing, which is such and such and such, the other person you're dealing with 
okay, is coming from a completely 180-degree uh, uh, different direction. And he believes that he is right. So what is right and what is wrong is totally subjective, okay? Doing the correct okay, yep, thing... I agree with that. Doing the correct thing is how do both parties become assuaged in this, uh, uh, you know, become like uh, at peace and in harmony with the situation itself. That's the correct thing. Okay. okay. Uh, is the right thing to uh, if somebody's in a fight and you jump into the fight is the correct, is the right thing to hit them over the head with a stick or is the correct thing to protect yourself and not be in a situation that you're going to have to like make that kind of a decision. Doing the correct thing enables you to get past the, uh, I guess, the uh, the psychological impediment of, gee, is this the right thing or is this the wrong thing to do? No, you do the correct thing. And instinctively, instinctively, human nature knows the correct thing to do. It's not always the right thing to do because the right thing to do may just create more of a problem. So the correct thing is what cools out both Size of a of an argument, kind of. A okay, thing. so let's. Why don't you uh, why don't you get into the value of practice and let's hear about that. Oh yeah, all right. A traveling circus came to the village, advertising all sorts of clowns, animals, and acrobatic acts. The show people put up signs telling about all of the terrific and wonderful things that would be performed for the villagers that included jugglers, prancing horses, and dancing bears. Everyone in the village looked forward to seeing the show, especially the children. Tomo-san and his dog Kidu ran around the fairground watching the trainers make the animals do tricks in preparation for the show and watching the workers set up the tents. Tomo-san especially liked the dancing bears, and he liked the way the trainer would simply look at the animals, wave a stick, and the animals would perform. Tomo-san thought to himself, all the man is doing is looking at the bears and waving his stick. They do what he wants, and he doesn't even have to say anything to them. Maybe they are afraid of the stick. That night, when it was quiet, and Tomo-san should have been asleep in bed, he quietly left his house with Kidu following him. They made their way to the fairground, and Tomo-san walked right up to the bear cage. The animals seemed to be sleeping, so he picked up a stick and tapped it against the side of the cage. One of the bears opened his eyes and simply lifted his head and looked at the boy. Doing the same thing that the trainer had done, Tomo-san waved a stick in the air. But the bear only got up and walked to the other side of the cage where he lay down again without making a sound. That was curious, thought Tomo-san. Then he walked to the other side of the cage and waved the stick again. The bear did nothing. Tomo-san lifted the stick up into the air again, but this time he let out a yell. Yahoo! shouted the boy. The bear was startled by the yell, and sitting up he let out a big roar. When Kido heard the bear growl, he ran away with Tomo-san right on his tail. That was scary, Tomo-san thought. As he ran, I guess that wasn't the easy way to make the bear do tricks. While they were running, Tomo-san almost crashed into his friend Mokube, who had been visiting one of his acrobat friends and had seen what the boy had been doing. The wise man let out a little chuckle and asked the boy if he had been scared, 
and then explained to him how to become good at something. As they walked back to the village, they talked about all the exciting things they would see the next day at the circus. And the moral is, when something looks easy to do, it is because the person doing it has practiced a lot. And you can do the same by practicing as well. Okay, so we're not getting into any politics with this particular thing. What we're talking about here is when a master is actually doing something. You know, I, I get this a lot, you know, when I'm doing certain uh, kata or certain martial uh, arts exercises, and I'm, I'm, you know, firing off kicks and punches. People say, wow, man, that, that's, there's nothing to that, man. It looks like you're not doing anything at all. Of course, then when they try to do it, you know, they start stumbling and tripping over themselves. I mean, <laughs> that's the whole basis of learning an art. It's the same thing when you pick up an instrument for the first time. Well, yeah, I could play that violin like Paganini. Yeah, of course. All you got to do is practice for about 40 years until, you know, you can emulate that, you know? Uh, right. So you have to be taught properly. And with rare exception, can someone come along that doesn't need a teacher, so to speak? So what Mokabai is telling him, look, and, and you have to put this into the situation that you're involved with. If you want to learn something, you have to practice it and get to know what it is you're trying to do and to get the communication going between yourself and, uh, if you will, the object of your affection, so to speak. And so right. this makes a lot of sense because kids are looking at it and say, hey, yeah, well, I, I want to be, uh, I want to play uh, basketball like LeBron James. Well, okay, start doing hoops in the park every day for 10 hours, you know, kind of a thing, until it gets to the point where, you know, the ball and you understand the reason for both of your existence. And the ball knows that it's function. Now, there's a lot of people don't catch this right away. And so I explain it. The ball, even though it's a sentient thing, is an extension of you. Okay. In this particular story, the stick is the extension of the trainer. And the bear has become connected to the stick and the trainer, and there's this bond. And in the same way that, like, you know, you're standing there in the schoolyard, you've got to be – I know this sounds very zen and very, oh, wow, far out, far out, but it's not. It's basic, man. What is the object of you throwing the ball at that circle on a stick? The object is to put the ball through the circle on the stick. And you're not going to do it if you're going to force it. You just have to, like, look at it and understand and say, hey, you know what? Okay, ball. And we're making, we're making light over here. That's all, you know. I want you, when you leave my hands, to go into the circle on the stick. And what happens is you, as the individual, as as the activator, become calm, and it's not you're not trying to force the ball. Ball naturally goes there because I know what the ball needs to like go up in the air and go through the hole. Now this, this sounds very uh, very uh, high end. It's not, man. It's the same thing when you learned how to ride a bicycle. Someone held you up. Okay, and they held a seat, and you pedaled, and you, you would steer the bicycle. And, like, you, you're wavering left and right, and you, you're scared for a little bit. And then uh, all of a sudden, you find out that the person that was holding the bicycle isn't holding the bicycle, and you're riding the bicycle. Okay? 
So you don't have to develop that dependency on that hand to hold you. Right. And it's becoming you know, one you know where I'm situation. In all of these situations, I think you're talking about oneness, unity. Oneness, absolutely. Absolutely. It's oneness with you, with yourself, and what it is that you expect anything external to manifest as. Exactly. based on your own awareness, based on your own awareness of your own value. And values Hachi, I, no, this, um, first of all, I mean, not only are the lessons profound and uh, because they are so simple, but, you know, the, the way that you build the story, and I mean, that's, I mean, how do you think of, uh, my mind would have never gone to the circus and the stick and the bear, and, and you now that, now that you elaborate on it, you start to understand all of the, the nuances of the story and, you know, this uh, connection of a relationship between the bear and the trainer and the stick. I mean, but how did how did you uh, all of a sudden, you know, come up with this uh, concept of the 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 circus? You know, if I knew the answer to that, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was waiting for. <laughs> if I knew the answer to that, I'll, I'll give you an idea. When I first wrote this book, it was not called Cherry Blossoms for Children. Mm-hmm. It was called Zen Fairy Tales for Children of All Ages. And it was, mm-hmm. a, I would say it was a bit ribald, okay? And uh, Peggy, my editor, looks at it and says, hey, you know, this is really great. Uh, where are we going with this? So I went out to a whole bunch of uh, different publishers and things like that. And uh, they said, wow, you know, we don't know where to place this. I says, I don't know what the problem is. Just put it on the shelf so they're going to buy it, <laughs> that kind of a thing. And then Peggy came up with the idea of saying, make it a kid's book. I says, well, I don't do kid's books. She says, of course you do. You're a writer. You guys can do anything if you put your mind to it, kind of a thing. I said, thank you very much. And then, of course, you know, writing the stories is one thing. Getting them ready to, <laughs> to be read by everybody else with the editing process. That's something we were thinking about it, and this particular story uh, was coming from a, a situation that I had observed uh, in, in in another context, where somebody was trying to make their dog do a trick or something like that, and they started yelling at the dog, and some of the dog was looking at them like, you know, what the hell are you yelling at me for, you know? I mean, what the heck are you yelling at me for, you know? And I just, like, uh, start writing, and uh, I guess I'm blessed with that gift that, uh, hey, this is the story you got to talk, the value of practice, okay? Now, put it in that context with a uh, circus scenario. I said, okay, you could have said put it in the, circ- put it in the context with a mountain climbing uh, scenario. I don't know. It just comes out the way it comes out. Well, you know, and one I'm, of the I things so fortunate that, that way, you know. Well, let's you know, and it's it's a fabulous process. And one of the things that you know we were doing for a while, and want to come back to, and always remind kids who are listening that um, how important it is to to write every single day, and mm. just to whether it's simply to keep a journal or anything, because it's a magical place. And, Absolutely. Uh, well, here, let, let's listen to this uh, youngster. That's a little, quick little PSA we have here on this. <clears throat> it's called my daily idea book, 
and I can write as much as invention, inventions as I want in one day, or I could just do one a day. But I choose to do as many as I have that pop into my head. It's because I'm making something and it's coming from uh, my heart and my head. I, I love helping people, so then I know that that's what real inventors do, and I will become a professional one someday. <laughs> that happens when I'm in the classrooms uh, I'll the teacher and I will decide this you know before I start to do it is I will teach the children okay to let themselves write stories and I so let's just pick anyone in particular let's say accepting a gift number 19 okay I said okay, okay. I'll read the story to them and then I'll say, okay, now I want you to write the story I just told you. And I says, well, we don't know how to write. I says, you certainly do. You ever do homework? And I said, yeah, okay, so write a story about accepting a gift. And you will be surprised how, how incredibly gifted and talented children are because they're just writing what they feel. And they're writing it from the heart, and if they and if they run into a, an odd situation or something, they'll raise their hand. And how do you make person say this, or how do you make this person say that? And I'll go to the board, and I'll show them the correct structure for writing it—a dialogue or a scenario or something like that. And when I walk out of the classroom, uh, you know, when I'm done with the whole thing, like the teachers, uh, most of the time, will say, he gads, man, you know, <laughs> it's that simple. I said, yeah, it is that simple. The thing is, you have to think it's simple. If you think it's difficult, you're absolutely wrong, but you're positively right, <laughs> okay? <laughs> if you tell yourself something is virtually impossible to do, and you'll never be able to do it, you're absolutely right. Okay? On the other hand, if you say, hey, I can write a story, and my story can even be better than his story, you have just freed yourself from the, um, from the constraints of trying to imitate something. And instead of competing, you are now creating. See, because competition uh, nice, is what makes it back. And there's a huge okay. difference. Unfortunately, we live in unfortunately we live no, in a society that, that uh, the emphasis is on competition, and that's you know that's why I asked you earlier about the win uh, win win situation. It's uh, you know if if you're you're not focused on defeating the other person or being better, you're not concerned with anything. You're just if concerned with expressing and putting something out there. There's a huge and getting difference. it done. Exactly. You know, uh, well, you know, this whole thing about practice, and that's one of the things that uh, I'm reading uh, a great story about Ben Hogan, and I'm sure that a lot of the uh, listeners don't remember Ben Hogan, but he was a phenomenal phenomenal golfer. And to me, um, you know, of all those Zen practices, I don't think, and I think everybody in the world agrees, it's the toughest sport in the world. Uh, It's the sport that humbles everybody. 
And in the case of Ben Hogan, <clears throat> he had no talent. <laughs> he uh, his uh, own talent. Way only ahead of everybody. <laughs> yeah, his only talent was practice and okay. perseverance. You know, but everybody, if they looked at him, you know, the way he held his the, the club and the way he swung, um, that everybody, nobody would have bet that he would have become the master that he did become. And he attributed it to, and it, it was true. Nobody, nobody could practice as hard as long, or as long as he would. And eventually, uh, things came to be. And I think that's one of the things that you know. I, when I decided that I wanted to learn magic and entertain by magic, there was a great. Remember the days of Doug Henning. Ah. Uh, the yeah, uh, the Doug magician Henning, yeah. Doug Henning, yeah. David Copperfield, and all of them. Well, Doug Henning, I'll never forget it. He, uh, they were asking him, you know, how do you get to this point where you can do these things? And he said, well, he says it's it comes in stages. And he says the uh, first, it's impossible. He says, and then he says if you work on it long enough, he says the impossible becomes possible. He says, and then the possible. He says, right, then the possible becomes difficult. He says, and then the difficult becomes easy. He says, and with enough great, practice, yeah. the easy becomes beautiful. That's it. That's it. That's it. And those I mean, are the stages exactly in your life. That's it with everything. That's it with everything. Exactly. And that's, you know, and that's what you were just talking about, breaking through the impossible barrier. It's only impossible if you think that it is. That is true. That is true. I mean, any of the any of the great uh, accomplishments of man. I mean, look at Edison, for example. It doesn't matter who did the work in the lab. Let's get that right out of the way. I know I can make a little glass thing with a string in it that can light up. <laughs> I said, "Yeah, right." <laughs> he says, "Now, how do I go about this?" And some of them are about three thousand or four thousand. Well, ten thousand. There was ten thousand. Yeah. There it is. There it is. But he didn't quit. No, you can't quit. That's the whole thing. That's why people keep saying to me, "You know, eventually you're going to be a millionaire." I says, "Well, yeah, if at the rate I'm going, man, I should make it when I'm 140." You know that kind of a thing. <laughs> well, like the thing is, people say to me, "Do you write every day?" I said, "Well, no." I said, "What do you mean, no?" I said, well, what do you mean? You asked the question. I gave you an answer. And I said, but my mind is always going. My mind is going, what's the next thing that's going to happen in this particular story? What's the next thing that's going to happen to this particular character? And I don't sit there and write it down. I just think about, like, the uh, possibilities of how it's going to happen. Okay? And as I'm writing, okay, and I tell this to the kids, don't think about what you're writing. I said, what do you mean don't think about what I'm writing? I said, just let the words come out of you and read the words that are coming out of you. And these kids, I'm telling you, it's like instant satori for like 95% of these kids. I said, oh, my God, you mean I don't have to worry about how it's going to end up or anything like that? I said, no, as long as you have an idea of where you think it should go. Because everything you write, everything you do, eventually, depending upon your sincerity and devotion to it, takes on a life of its own. It takes on a life of its own, using you as the vehicle of its creation. 
You know, I, I don't want to get into like you know, uh, you know, creation of the universe and stuff like that. That's not where we're going here. Okay, but when you start to do something, or like you say, say okay, you pick up a knife and a piece of wood and you say, I'm going to make a uh, little carving of a fish. Now let's see. Now the fish has got to have this. It's got to have that. It's got to have this. It's got to. It's never going to get done. But all of a sudden, you see, hey, you know, somebody looks at it and says, wow, that's an interesting way to look at a fish. And what has happened is that fish, as an example, what we're talking about is a direct extension of your creativity. It's not like, let's see, he made a fish that looks like a whale. I'm going to make a fish that looks like a shark. Okay, it's not, you're not competing. You're just letting the wood and the knife and yourself express and there it is and it usually becomes a fantastic piece of work you know know, the uh it is the ingredient that i think um the link that most um well that that isn't revealed to children and you know a lot of it has to do with the way that the you know the system is set up um because the system comes from some of the things that we were talking about earlier. So it comes from the idea of competition, doing it alone, uh, et cetera. Right. And, the, you know, I think one of the last times we spoke, or the book that put it all together for me was um, Stephen Pressfield's uh, the, the War of Art, not The Art of War, but The War of Art, which he simply says is that, you know, uh, there's two U's. There's the U you are and the U you want to be. In between that That's is right. resistance. And so, but the in, the thing that he, you know, makes very clear is that there is a muse, whatever you want to call the muse. And you, you've you just talked about the muse. That, yes. That as soon as you begin, you will have help. Oh, absolutely. 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 You know, like, uh, the same way it would be. Like, I'll go back to the piece of wood and the knife. Okay, uh, hey, I want to make a fish. Now, all of a sudden, someone comes into your life. I, I don't know how this works. Well, I do know how it works, but, but, you know, let's keep it simple. Someone comes into your life and happens to be a carver, and you're watching that person, and that person asks you, are you interested? Yeah, you know, we're making a scenario here. Okay, yeah, okay, well, here's how you hold the knife. But well, if you hold the knife this way, make sure it's comfortable in your hand, the whole thing, don't go through any, uh, you know, uh, distortions or things like that. And the next thing you know, it just becomes a natural flow, a natural extension. And and that that's how that's how all the great things come. Uh I mean, even into the realms of technology, high technology, you know, uh, you want to get something done, you have to have the vision. How do you get the vision? Look around you at everything that's going on. In order to become a giant, you have to step, stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before you. I mean, it had to come from somewhere. You know, everything's already you know, created. You've you just segued into a, a bit I love to play. You want to take a couple of minute break here and play this? Sure, absolutely. Here we go. Here to talk about technology and uh, giants. Uh, here we go. It should come on in a sec. Okay. You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. 
So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. Because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart even when it leads you off the well-worn path. And that will make all the difference. What would you like to do if money were no object? What would, how would you really enjoy spending your life? Well, it's so amazing as a result of our kind of educational system, crowds of students say, well, we'd like to be painters, we'd like to be poets, we'd like to be writers, but as everybody knows, you can't earn any money that way. Or another person says, well, I'd like to live an out-of-doors life and ride horses. If you say that getting the money is the most important thing, you will spend your life completely wasting your time. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living, that is to go on doing things you don't like doing, which is stupid. Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. And after all, if you do really like what you're doing, it doesn't matter what it is, you can eventually turn it, uh, you can eventually become a master of it. The only way to become a master is something to be really with it. And then you'll be able to get a good fee for whatever it is. But it's absolutely stupid to spend your time doing things you don't like in order to go on spending things you don't like and doing things you don't like and to teach your children to follow in the same track. And so, therefore, it's so important to consider this question. What do I desire? Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. You've got to find what you love. And that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Well, that's, that's a couple so right of giants the right there. Steve Jobs so right and Alan Watt. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. Okay, you know, and and but but you know, the reason it becomes difficult to do is because you weren't taught that and shown that in your exactly. Years. You were taught the opposite. You were taught, you were taught to fit in a hole that somebody else made. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I look at some of the great works of art, for example. As a matter of fact, uh, on my uh, on my uh, screen here. Uh, you know, for my um, desktop 
uh, picture, you know, on, on my screen. I have a painting by Salvador Dali, okay? <laughs> and the name of the picture is Sewing Machine with Umbrellas. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is the most impossible. It makes absolutely no sense, okay? But the thing is, you can actually see how in his, what they call insane mind, I guess, you know, how he could put this together. And I see it, and I crack up saying, you know, if anything makes sense, it's definitely a sewing machine with umbrellas. Because it's only your perception. Now, if he was told that, like, you know, as a kid, the same thing with the Beatles, okay, the Beatles, for example, hey, uh, you can't do that with music, then they would they would have been stultified. It would have never happened. But they never had the, uh, shall we say, the education that tells them what's right and what's wrong. They just say, hey, this sounds right. Let's do this. Let's do that. And that's where that whole thing came from. And, and that's an absolutely marvelous thing. That's why this great consciousness-moving uh, movement started way back when, you know, uh, in like the 60s when everything started to turn around. Because you can do whatever you feel is right for you and it will come out correctly. But if you're going to try to do something based on what I do, it's never going to waste the way we call it the cheap imitation of the real thing, you know, like um, the arrogance of flattery, you know, which is essentially like a major insult towards the person who created their own thing in the first place. But anything you want to do, and you have to teach this to the kids, and they have to understand it. And all of this frustration that you, you see coming out in kids like with the violence, with the lack of respect and things like that is based on the idea that they instinctively know they're getting ripped off. They know it and they can't do anything about it. And because, shall we say, the education or society is trying to maintain control over them, that's how, that's how uh, society loses control. You want to control people? It's real simple. Let them do what they want to do. Within the concerns <laughs> of a reason, obviously. I mean, uh, there are certain societies uh, where, should... where they say, like, you know, heinous acts are a, are a standard. And if you don't do these terrible things, you're never going to be part of society. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the ability to what I am doing is, yeah, for me to get off on myself, but for me to give out ever wants it because the more I have, the more I can give out. The more I can give out, for some reason, the more I seem to be able to get. Okay? And if you can order it, so actually I wrote this book. How come I didn't make a million dollars on it? That's why, you know, I, everybody should understand this and they should all be buying this book. doesn't mean a thing. If the work that you do has merit to stand on its own, you have essentially done the job. See, so I'm not interested necessarily. I done. Hey, you know, Calvin wrote these books. He's this, that, and the other thing. No. What is the value of this book to somebody who picks it up? What is the value of the lesson I'm trying to get across here that I had to learn? Because you got to understand something about writing. Writing is is a very singular thing, and what you do when you're writing is you're trying to figure out certain things in your own mind as to how to conduct yourself. If you don't do that, then you can just write all kinds of gibberish and stuff like that. And unfortunately, most of society is based on the idea of superficiality. 
But even those people look at themselves and say, why can't I just be who I am? You know, one of my adages is, you know, it is not hard to be you. It is hard being you. (laughs) You know, if you try to, well, let's see, who am I supposed to be today? You know, that kind of a thing. Okay. And all that does is create frustration and anger and uh, can only uh, come out in a chaotic form of uh, violence in one form or another. But kids got to right. be shown, hey, this is the correct way to do something, okay? It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, as long as, you know, you're, you're not harming anything, okay? Do it this way, okay? And if it doesn't work for you, figure out the way that it's going to work for you because whatever it is that you're going to figure out to do is the correct thing for you, for you. Don't be worrying about what the rest of the world thinks. The rest of the world is too busy trying to figure out what they got to do for themselves. See, so you got to, so you got to jump start on everybody when you start knowing that you creation of the universe that was put here to do a particular thing for whatever reason. And that's it. Wow. The, the, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I love it. And, you know, going back to Stephen Jobs' words, you know, That's right. you, you have to trust in something. And that's the point about, you know, trying to tell kids you are not alone. You know, you are, there is something that is guiding you. There is some place when you go to writing or you go to art or you go to whatever the practices that you love, Something is waiting for you, and mm-hmm. it will guide you. you know, and that's when he says you have to trust your intuition, you trust your gut, you trust your heart, trust life, but you have to trust that something is there that knows how the dots will be connected, that you do have a destiny, and you can, the only one between you and that destiny most of the times is yourself. <laughs> That's right. You know, getting in your own way, absolutely. <laughs> getting in exactly. your own way, and it's amazing because when you do start to express yourself as an individual, then come the slings and arrows of everybody who is trying to uh, distract you and divert you because of their own uh, inabilities to come to terms with their own reality. You know, it took a long yeah. time for me to understand this as well. You know, I didn't. You know, I wasn't born on a lotus leaf. You know, <laughs> yeah. Gee, you were well, the only well, one who wasn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. How, how do you do that, man? So, I don't know how the hell I do it. I, I just, well, how the heck I do it? Well, you know, I think this is a segue into another. <laughs> Can you read uh, "Accepting a Gift"? Yes. You want me to read that? Sure, please. All right. Uh, <laughs> um. Accepting a gift. See, I carry this book around with me all the time. Well, not all the time. There are times when I carry another book. But <laughs> I'll, I'll show you how this all applies to the martial arts as well. Okay. Let's go. Uh, accepting a gift. Mocha Bay was a generous man once you got to know him. But even so, the wise man had learned early on that it was foolish to give away anything for nothing. If you give it away, he had explained to Tomo-san, it is never appreciated except in rare cases. He also knew that if you weren't paid back directly, then good fortune would smile on you from another place. Nevertheless, 
It was always best to be paid for your services. Mokabe didn't meditate on his own generosity. He spent most of his time meditating on the good things of the universe. He only interfered when others came to him for advice and only if they insisted. One day, some beggars passing by Mokabe's hut asked the wise man if he knew where they could get some work so they could continue their journey to the city. Mokabe told them he didn't have work for them, but they should seek out the owner of the silk mill, who was always looking for workers and was a fair man. Beggars went to the mill, but soon came back to Mokabe with a bit of anger in their voices. They told him that the man wanted them to sweep out the stables where the horses were kept, and then they could do other things once he knew they were reliable. They felt the mill owner had insulted them, and that Mokobe had insulted them, because he should have known that cleaning stables was not the work for men of their type. They also complained that the man was so rich that they couldn't understand why he wouldn't just give them something so they could go on their way. Mokobe realized that the two men were fools, <laughs> were trying to intimidate him. He told them that something was better than nothing, and if they didn't like it, they could look elsewhere. They looked at Mokobe with a bit of annoyance in their stare, but the wise man looked right through them and they left. Mokobe, feeling a bit hungry, went inside his hut and began to prepare a small meal for himself while thinking about the lesson that the passing beggars had learned that day. And what was the lesson? When you ask for someone for help and they give it, even though it is not what you wanted, say thank you and tell them you will continue looking elsewhere. Okay? Bravo. Now, in other words, if you come to me and say, hey, uh, can you teach me this, that, and the other thing? And I say, yes, I will. Okay, the first thing you got to do is learn how to punch. No, 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 no. We know how to punch. Uh, show us some of the really advanced techniques so we can really go out and show people what we know. I personally I said, look, if that's your attitude, then I don't have anything to teach you. Was there anything you're going to do, you can do on your own at that point. And so what happens is, and it doesn't mean that I follow a strict, strict regimen to do the same exact thing with every student that comes along. Yeah, that's why I don't teach in a, uh, you know, like a large school. I teach, you know, pretty much individually. So I can get to know what it is that you as a student need. And so that I can give you what you need so that you can develop. And if you don't want that, hey, you know, the door works two ways, all right? And uh, you have to understand when you're giving something to someone and they have asked you for it and they say, hey, that's not the way we want you to give it, you're not gonna, you, no matter what you do, it's not going to work. And you have to pick up on that right away, okay? So accepting a gift means you must be gracious, and take it to the level where, okay, yeah, it works for me or it doesn't work for me, and then say thank you and continue on, or say thank you and continue on, <laughs> you know, that, that that way, you know. People, well, don't, and I found people don't understand that a lot of they say, hey, man, I want you to do this for me. I want you to do this for me, man. Excuse me, where's it written in stone that I have to do what you want, you know? Said, well, uh, I was told that you could do this. He says, yeah, I can do that. And I can show you how to do that, but you have to take it the way I give it to you. And if you don't want it the way I give it to you, it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means I'm not going to knock myself out trying to find out what it is that you need so that I'm going to, like, cause myself harm to my own psyche and stuff like that, you know. 
So this well, it's the old, on and on and on the old Zen yeah. saying that a student can't come to a teacher with his cup full. That's right. That's right. I get students yeah. that come to me uh, <clears throat> from other teachers from other schools. First thing I ask them, does your teacher know that you're coming to me? You know, for, for any particular reason. I, was, I, don't, I don't want to get into any, like, politics or, uh, hey, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And if, or, or if they say, well, I study with so-and-so for so long, but they feel that there's something missing, I said, let me see what you were taught. They said, well, no, uh, we don't want to do that. We want you to show us what you know. I said, I can't show you what I know unless I know what you think you know. Oh, wow, heavy, you know, that kind of a thing. And that's really where it's at. That, that's why, I mean, yeah, I get frustrated too. And I just look around and say, like, Today we're going to work on a basic punch. I said, well, I can do a basic punch. I said, well, let me see. And then I'll watch that. I said, okay, now do that, but try it this way. Try it that way. Do this, do that. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's great. Okay, and I'll work on it. And then I say, okay, I've got their attention, so to speak. Let's go to the next level. But if they're not going to pay attention, then I could give them like, you know, you know what do they say? You give it to them on a silver platter. And they would figure out a way to let the, uh, the silver platter tarnish. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Listen, yeah, Hanshi, this was a great yeah. show. We're gonna we're gonna shut us off in exactly twenty four seconds. Um, okay. But thank you, and it's always a joy. I mean, I just I, I, I every time you read a story, I, the the settings, the characters, the lessons, the morals are just uh, brilliant. Really. Right. Oh, by the way, if thank you so much. Touch, yeah, anybody wants to get in touch with me, it's h a n s h i dot com, hanshi dot com, and anything. H a n s h i dot com, and uh, please visit his site. And there's some great stuff. The video was fantastic. If you learn a lot of great lessons just by uh, paying attention to that, Hanshi, let's do this again. Absolutely. I enjoy it a lot. It gives me a chance to, like, really let it out, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a lot to let out, and it's really valuable information. And uh, we hope that, you know, the, the followers we have get something out of this and start to understand, hey, listen, listen to yourself. Do what Steve Jobs and Tom Hayes and Hanchi Kaufman are trying to tell you, that all the answers are inside. And if you go there every day, that's why it's important to write. That's why it's important to Listen to your heart like Stephen Jobs and Alan Watts say, and do what you love. Right, Hanchi? You got it, sir. You got it. We'll be in touch soon. Okay. Till the next time. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye now. All right. Take care. Use your being, trust your heart. Build your character in peace.